Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Paul Giraud, who is going to speak on building the Transcontinental Railroad. Paul is an engineer himself, worked for Kewitt, and he has been involved in lots of big projects over 40 years, including the East Bay Bridge, uh, the big dig in, in uh, Boston, um, and other uh, major projects across the country. Paul, thanks a lot for coming. Uh, thank you, George. Um, also, thank you for reminding me I have a fear of public speaking right before I start. Uh, so this, uh, this lecture um, that I'm going to share with you tonight is something I prepared to help celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad. And um, I'm actually very involved in the civil engineering history circles. Um, uh, it's quite the scene. There's, uh, you know, it's actually a relatively small group, but really uh, avid uh, civil engineering uh, fans. And I've been involved with uh, the anniversaries of many civil engineering icons, including the Brooklyn Bridge, Golden Gate, and many others. And so uh, about a year ago, I got a call from the history folks asking me if I would prepare a lecture for the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad. And at the time, my whole knowledge of the Transcontinental Railroad was what I learned from Mel Brooks in Blazing Saddles. (laughs) So, uh, but that didn't deter me, and um, I decided to roll up my sleeves and see what we could learn. So I'm happy to be able to share that with you tonight. So the Transcontinental Railroad... um, you know, I remember reading, um, it was that uh, poet N. Scott Mamaday wrote of the West. He said, the landscape of the American West has to be seen to be believed, and perhaps conversely has to be believed to be seen. Here is the confluence of image and imagination. And I have to tell you, my imagination was in overdrive in late February when I stood in the very spot where the Golden Spike was driven 150 years ago. Now, if you've been to Promontory Summit, you realize very quickly that it's largely unchanged in the last century and a half. It's about a mile above sea level, and this windswept plain was the culmination of one of the most important chapters in the history of civil engineering, and indeed civilization. Uh, very quickly, to get you kind of uh, into what we're, what's going on here, January of uh, 1848, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill. You have Isa Whitney, um, uh, promoting the idea of a Pacific Railroad uh, shortly thereafter. California uh, was made the 31st state in 1850. And then you have Senator Chase passing the exploration bill of, uh, to find a passage to the West um, in 1853. So the, um, Grenville Dodge, he was able to find the, what they call the Platte River Valley through Nebraska. So there was this exploration going on. And clearly, by the mid-19th century, the Western migration was building momentum. And one of those immigrants that came to the West was a guy named Theodore Judah. Maybe some of you have heard of Theodore Judah. He actually attended uh, Rensselaer Polytech at the age of 11. So this was a pretty sharp guy. And uh, he, he came here to California, and he was 28 years old, came here in 1854, and uh, he became the chief engineer of the fledgling Sacramento Valley Railroad. And this is one of uh, this is Judah's map from 1854, and he basically laid out a rail line from San Francisco to Sacramento, going through the area of what would be um, Livermore and that area today. 
And now Judah, you know, after that, he started exploring the Sierra Nevada range. And he w- it was said that he crossed, crossed the Sierra Nevadas 23 times on foot or ha- horseback in 1856 and 1857. And he was, uh, he was felt very confident that the so-called Dutch flat route he had discovered would be a practical one for a railroad. So he returned home. And then he published a 13,000-word pamphlet as his own, own expense, and he had that uh, printed, and he mailed copies to all members of Congress and then their department chairs in Washington, D.C. Now, many concluded Judah's plan was crazy. Undaunted, Judah continued his lobbying efforts in the spring of 1860 in Washington, D.C. for the Pacific Railroad Bill, which failed at that time due to sectionalism with the southern states. So with the succession of the southern states, um, after Lincoln was elected, we had the Civil War breaks out. Central Pacific was incorporated June of uh, 1861. And then uh, Judah was continuing his lobbying efforts. Uh, Stanford was elected governor in 1861, September 61. The Pacific Railroad Bill was finally passed in July of 1862 and July 1st and was signed by Lincoln this very same day. And in that very same day, the Union Pacific Railroad was also incorporated. So things are moving very quickly now. Um, but, you know, the country is in the middle of the Civil War. So it's kind of an unsettled period of time. Now, Judah uh, sailed east at this time to try to uh, get more financial backing uh, for the effort. And um, he went through the Isthmus of Panama as he went uh, back east to New York. And he contracted tropical fever, probably yellow fever or malaria going through the Isthmus of Panama, and after, upon arriving in New York, he died three days later. So um, the sudden death of Judah left the Central Pacific without a chief engineer, and eventually Samuel Montagu, who had worked for Judah, uh, as was appointed the chief engineer of the Central Pacific. And then Canadian-born uh, and trained engineer Louis Clement would be named the chief assistant engineer. Now, if, this, if you look at this profile from Omaha to Sacramento, uh, if you look at the alignment and plan view above and then elevation uh, b- view below, it's 1,800 miles in length, and it doesn't look that challenging, really, huh? Only 20 large radius curves there to build. Uh, but if we exaggerate the vertical scale, um, we get a little bit better idea of the challenges that they might be facing, um, rising to over 8,000 feet above sea level. And t- we'll, go in- we'll zoom into an area, a little about a 400-mile zone that we know pretty well here in Northern California, but even on this map of that, when we zoom in there, if you look at that, it really doesn't show, show that to be very challenging from Sacramento all the way up to the Nevada border. But I found this map from um, USGS published in 1916. gives a little bit better idea of what they're trying to do there. And if we zoom in a little closer, uh, right up to around the summit around Donner Pass and look at that area, we get to, you know, a little bit more humbling picture of what they were going trying to do. So perhaps Judah was crazy. I mean, after all, you have the unprintable wall of the Sierra Nevada Mountains looming to the east of Sacramento, not to mention the Rocky Mountains that you'd have to go through, and of course the Wasatch Range. Now, Judah wrote in his pamphlet, he said, there are numerous points to the proposed plan which will no doubt appear to many as bold, startling, and apparently impractical. But if as boldest, they'll have no other effect than to induce sensible men to read and reflect upon them, the desire of the writer will have been gratified. Theodore Judah. Now, yet by the mid-19th century, the civil engineering body of knowledge was rapidly expanding, and one of the rest, uh, best railroad civil engineers of the day was West Point graduate General Herman Haupt. 
and having established his experience in bridges and tunnels, he published a book um, called The General Theory of Bridge Construction in 1851. Now, just to give an idea of Hope's abilities, the, the bridge you see below is the Potomac Creek Bridge, built during the Civil War under his direction in nine days. <laughs> Heavy carpentry methods and material properties were well, well established and published uh, one of the go-to standards of the day was the Trey Gold's principles of construction and the carpentry and joinery. And within that, they would show connection details that would be standard and also the uh, material properties of the various types of woods that might be used to construct uh, buildings, bridges, and other things. Now, to build an efficient railroad, planners had to consider many variables. There would be the route options between di very different termini, relative distance between those routes, probable grade differences, elevations and depressions along the alignment, the general and specific alignment of the rail, and also the potential to maybe harvest uh, resources along the line, like timber or coal and those things. So uh, the planners needed a lot more detailed information in order to make an efficient railroad, so they sent out survey crews. Now, for this task, the civil engineers would need to employ state-of-the-art surveying principles and equipment. And uh, what I would tell you, they would do these things called rec reconnaissance surveys, uh, risking their lives, and I was able to do that uh, in my home office uh, with Google Earth Pro. I could do, take a, do a whole I could do a whole probably uh, every crew they had. I could do it in one week. What they did took all summer, so uh, pretty amazing. Now the survey crews were they varied in size depending on the ter terrain. Uh, they were organized to be very self-sufficient. Uh, this is an 1888 photograph from the Central Pacific, showing a typical crew composition of that day. The uh, whole p wages for that crew would be about $20,000. And they would be equipped with the state-of-art equipment. They were all optical instruments, the optical level, optical transit. And uh, they would use an engineer's train to establish distances between points. So, um, so we should think about the process of a route survey. So the goal of a topographical route survey is to establish the relative uh, difference in successive points along a path, elevation, distance, and direction between different paths. So if they know the location of point one, they can uh, put another stake in the ground called point two, set up an instrument of point one, establish the uh, difference in elevation between those two, thereby knowing what point two is, pull the distance between the two, uh, turn an angle between point one and point two to point three, and just keep going. But again, you can see how uh, that process would be very laborious and time-consuming, uh, establishing points 100-foot maximum between those along the whole route. So in a, uh, alignment is very important, and grade control is very important, because if you look at the published tables of locomotives from this era, and I, I pulled one a table from a manufacturer. It was an 80,000-pound locomotive. So uh, at on level ground, that locomotive had a tractive effort uh, there of 2,000 tons. At 1% grade, the, that table would tell you that only an attractive effort of 500 tons. At 2%, it dropped around 300 tons. And at 3%, it would drop around around 200 tons. And the maximum allowed by law at this time was just a little over 2% is all that was allowed uh, by law at that time. The um, Also, the obviously, the tighter the curve, the, the trains would have to slow down. So the minimum uh, radius established for uh, rails was 400 feet. And then uh, but what they would do was they, had a, they put down 12 to 14 inches of ballast was the standard at the time, tw uh, 10 feet wide at the top, wide enough for the 8-foot uh, ties, 
they would put down 56-pound rails, which weighed 56 pounds per yard. They would be connected with fish plates, spikes would be driven, and they would ensure the gauge was set up four foot eight and a half inches. So 56-pound rail is per yard, So and they would come in 30-foot length. So a 30-foot length of rail weighed 560 pounds. Now, I was curious about how does that stack up against a modern locomotive? So if you look at the biggest General Electric locomotives now, they're uh, up to around 6,200 horsepower, tractive effort about 180,000 pounds. So that's 10 times more tractive effort than the locomotives that would have been using on the Transcontinental Railroad. So... The techniques for, uh, you know, smoothing the terrain, side cut. We all we drive a lot of side cuts here in Northern California up in the hills, so we've seen those. The other technique they could do is cut and fills. So you cut a slot in one area, take that material and dump it into the adjacent ravine. So that's the cut and fill technique. We see a lot of that in Northern California. Uh, trestles would be a way to level the terrain uh, or bridges. And the, probably the least uh, desire would be, to obviously, to build a tunnel. But when they get up in the Sierras, as many of you know, if you've been up there, there's a lot of tunnels up in the Sierras uh, to, you know, get the rails through there. So the challenge for the, the railroad engineer is to optimize the route to be as short, as straight, and smooth as possible. So further within the annual reports that I researched, uh, this is an annual report from Union Pacific Railroad, but in there, they actually calculated the quantities of these major work quantities. So they calculated uh, earth excavation, rock X, tunnel X, embankment, masonry, timber foundations, and truss bridging. Now, what's remarkable is they didn't do that for just one path. They did that for multiple paths. So if you think about this, and uh, this is where, you know, you, so they have this route from Omaha to all the way to Sacramento, there could be all these little variations along the way. So every one of those is going to generate different amounts of quantities to, to build the railroad. And then if you further think about the, um, the means and methods, so how they're going to perform the work. So that would generate a set of costs depending on means and methods. And if you alter the means and methods, it's going to generate yet another set of costs. So they were doing these things. And I can quickly go to this is like uh, you need a supercomputer to figure this out. Yet, they were doing this with all manual uh, calculation methods. Further, to complicate it, uh, the revenue that was paid by the government, the stipend varied by terrain. So flat terrain, 16000 a mile. The foothills would be 32000 and up in the mountains, up to 48000 per mile. Now, if you took all the material they needed, anything iron, steel, would come from the East Coast. It would go around the southern tip of South America, and if you paid express delivery, if you had Amazon Prime back then, it would go through Panama, and you can get it quite a bit quicker, about an 8,000-mile shortcut for things delivered through Panama. You recognize in the background the Herba Buena Island. So the material came in here very, very close to where we are today, and the uh, material will be offloaded there. And then from there, it would go by steamer, paddle steamer, up to Sacramento. And this is right on the um, Sacramento River. Just uh, not too far from the, if you've been to the California Railroad Museum, this is about where that material was offloaded. So this is going to be a very busy place for the next five years, receiving all that uh, material. The first rails were laid in October of 63, and a month later, the, uh, the governor, um, Stanford, the first locomotive, went over the tracks. And there was a lot of optimism at the time, but money was tight and materials were scarce during uh, 1863. So if you think about the materials, so they've got to put down ties every two-foot 
Uh, initially, they might put them on four foot on centers. They would put down the 560 pound, 30 foot sections of rail. They would put the fish, fish plates on there to connect the rail. They would bolt it together. They would check the gauge and alignment of the outboard end. And then they would go ahead and drive the spikes. And then later, um, if they were trying to speed up, they could come back and put the the other ties in in between. So that process would just repeat. This would be a typical plaque, track lane crew. And with the command of down, the rails, 560-pound rails would be laid down or dropped probably onto the, the ties below. So you can quickly imagine the amount of rail material is enormous. They say 40 carloads of material for every mile of track that was placed. So when I was going through this, I'm trying to decide how am I going to articulate and explain the insanity of the logistics here. So you have the paddle steamers coming up to Sacramento. They offload all the iron material, the rail, the hardware, the spikes, uh, to the terminus there. And as the rails are completed, they can then put the, that material on the train and then ship it up up the line to, to uh, storage depots. When it gets to the depot, um, they obviously they're going to supplement the, what they can with stone, with wood, with uh, water, and then they're going to put uh, the material on wagon trains from there, and then it's going to be taken by wagon. And the, the law uh, said you can go up to 300 miles in advance of your where you place. So the worker camps have to be established, and then from there uh, the wagons can offload and take the material to help build the trestles, the tunnels, the cuts and fills. And the grading. And as I mentioned, that could be up to 300 miles in advance of the weather rails were being placed. So you think about the logistics here of uh, getting materials to the workers. It was quite complex indeed. Additionally, they put in a telegraph line. Uh, that was part of the deal with the government. So they put in telegraph line. And then these were uh, installed and used immediately to help communicate back with uh, the terminus. So you'll see a series of slides similar to this. I'm going to show you plan view. Uh, above and the elevation view below. This first one we're looking at is from Sacramento up to Junction, which is now the town of Roseville, 16 and a half miles of the crow's fly. The yellow lines will represent the actual alignment of the, the rail they place. So that's a nice flat place to start, but yet if you've been up there, you know there's the American River to cross, and that was the first big obstacle for Superintendent Crocker in San Montague. They'd only placed about three miles before coming to the American River, and um, they had to build this twin how truss there with long, this overall length of that bridge was 3,500 feet with the approach trestles. I found an article uh, from the Sacramento Bee, January 9th, 1863, describing the process. So they installed a timber crib coffer dam or timber coffer dam. In that, they drove piling two foot on center. There's about 114 piles that they drove in there, 10 inch diameter. They dewatered as much as they could. They cut the piling off level, put down two layers of 12 by 12 planking on top of that, and then some forge planking, and then on top of that, they placed the masonry. So that would be a typical pier construction for a river pier that you would see on the Transcontinental Railroad. So the Howe Trust uh, was selected by Montague, and the Howe Trust was known for its ease of construction and really good safety record. Very easy to build. Uh, lower cords was comprised of multiple pieces of large timber, Upper cords could be a little bit smaller because they're in compression. And then uh, you would have these angle blocks, cast iron anchor blocks would go in, the diagonal bracing, the hardware to bolt it together, the vertical tensile rods, and that would be the construction of a typical how truss. So very simple 
uh, easy to build, and very quick. So they would build the temporary trestles and then erect the how truss on top of that. And then that, of course, would allow the rails to be placed, and then uh, the train could then advance up the line. So in most cases, they would build a temporary bridge as quickly as they could to advance the logistics. In the case of the American River, uh, that was not possible. So this is a picture of the approach trestles. Trestles are just consistent, repetitive, uh, short bents as compared to the uh, bridge structure. Now, this is on the other side of uh, the American River. It's a nice straight shot all the way to Roseville. And this is late 1883 and 1884. Now, back east, the Union Pacific was just getting started in the, uh, the end of 1863. Thomas C. Durant was able to get controlling interest in the uh, railroad through dubious deal-making and appointed himself the uh, vice president and general manager. Later on December, the Union Pacific broke ground in Omaha, yet it would take months for that railroad to go really anywhere. So well, by the end of 1863, the Transcontinental Railroad's off to a very slow start, only eight miles uh, placed. This is uh, starting in early 1864. You know, you know the rains in Northern California. They have to wait for the rains to kind of help out a little bit, but they're uh, building the, uh, this is the first big uh, bridge. Um, How Trust, they're building at uh, Dry Creek, a mile 17. And then from Junction or Roseville, now we go up to Colfax, and you can see now the, the terrain's getting a lot more rugged. We rise ra- very rapidly in elevation, and you can tell by the yellow line and the curve in it that it's a lot more uh, interesting terrain as they go eastward. This is uh, tangent below Pino at mile 22, and you can see we're starting to do a little bit of cuts in there to, to get uh, maintain a good grade. And then we get to mile 22, some nice big granite outcroppings there with the set up a quarry there to harvest stone that they could use for building abutments and other structures. And this would be a typical um, crane davit on a rail car for handling stone. This is a picture of uh, Harvey Strobridge. He was the superintendent, uh, rail superintendent for the Central Pacific, and he was the only guy that was allowed to bring his family. He had a, a, a railroad car set up like a mobile home, so I guess we're looking at the first RV of the West here. This is uh, more, working our way eastward now at mile 30, Antelope Bridge. You can see, again, more cuts and fills as we go uh, further into the foothills. And then we get to Newcastle, mile 31, and Superintendent uh, Martha Brown was in charge of building the trestles. You can see this one's uh, uh, quite high, mile 31, building through there. The trestles were not custom designed. These would be made by, you know, uh, the engineers. Uh, they would just basically use sets of published tables and other uh, rules of thumb. So you have vertical and battered post. You have the diagonal and sway bracing, the horizontal sills and caps, and then the, finally the longitudinal stringers. So that's the basic components to building a trestle. There's many ways to build a trestle. This is just one uh, method would be they would maybe have a stone abutment. They'd put down uh, timber sills or sometimes dr- driven pile into the soil. They would use a sliding beam at the top. And they use that sliding beam with a pulley and rope and then hoist the material into position by hand. And um, so they would try to harvest local wood as much as they could, but that would be the way they would build a trestle, just by hand. And you can see from this photograph, uh, taken by heart, a mile 31 at Newcastle, a pretty mature agricultural scene there with the orchards in the foreground. At that same time, um, Crocker was able to get the Dutch Flat Wagon Road opened up 
90 mile uh, wagon road, you know, to get them tear up the line. But they also, if you were did not work for the railroad, you could use that after paying a toll. So even back then, they had to pay tolls. So quickly as the rails would reach a new town, uh, regular train service would be established, uh, which um, added much-needed additional revenue uh, to the railroad. Back in Omaha, um, this is uh, grading operations started in the spring of 1864. This is uh, probably present-day Dodge or Farnham Street looking uh, to the east. And uh, it taken, it's been a year and a half since the passage of the railroad bill, but yet the, the railroad had not really gone anywhere uh, out on the Union Pacific. Uh, now, while Durant had not been placing any track, he'd been busy uh, late trying to lay the groundwork for a more lucrative deal. He lobbied heavily in Washington, D.C. He said he spent $400,000 of cash lobbying to double the land grants. He also set up a sham company called Credit Mobilier to cycle all the construction billings through, which uh, doubled his profits as well. So kind of an interesting businessman. This is uh, in 1864. Uh, the, the work season came to an end. Uh, Union Pacific, or I'm sorry, Central Pacific placed 23 miles. Uh, Central Pacific, none. So at this rate, it's going to take about 150 years, <laughs> I think. Um, the finish line also gets moved. Cent- Central Pacific originally was going to build to the border of Nevada. They finally, the government in 1864 amended that bill to allow the Central Pacific to build to the middle of Nevada. This is uh, working, this is a mile 34 bloomer cut near Auburn. And uh, this cut, I'm going to show you the bloomer cut, took about a year to excavate. And you can look at this. This is cemented um, alluvial material. So it would be sand and gravel that is uh, almost like turned into concrete over time. Uh, This would require blasting and a lot of tough labor. Again, that was about a year of work, probably for 300 guys with a little fill area to the east. There would be countless structures like this along the whole railroad, some stone, some wood. Uh, for every water passage, they would have to build a structure. Now, um, at the, as the grading work continued going further into the foothills, the, it got more and more laborious, more cuts and fills, more excavation, more uh, clearing and grubbing of trees and brushes. And uh, the Irishmen who were working the crews originally for the Central Pacific Anytime there was a rumor of a new gold find, they would leave and run back to the gold mines. And um, so they were really struggling. Strobridge and Crocker were really struggling. They only had a few hundred people working on uh, grading at that time. And under Croker was able to convince Strobridge to try the Chinese workers. And uh, with that, they grew the, the work, the grading crews to 1,200 by April of 65 into around 4,000 by July of 1865. This is a heart photo that was taken of the construction train. It would be Strobridge's RV set up there and with the Chinese workers living in tents. So after the uh, fighting Bloomberg cut and other obstacles, the railroad reached Auburn Station in May of 1865. Now from Auburn up to Colfax, again, rugged terrain through there, only 20 miles further to get there. But with the Chinese helping, momentum was starting to build. Another example of a simple trust, this one in Auburn. This is um, Clipper Ravine at mile 43, 446-foot-long trestle. And then um, this one here, you can see a very complex vertical and horizontal curve on this uh, bridge at mile 48. Again, the terrain getting more and more rugged as they go. It would not be uncommon as soon as the trestle was complete, they would uh, use trains to dump embankment in 
uh, around to fill it up because they knew the wood would only last for so long and then it rot out. So uh, the, the idea was to build up the embankment so the rails would eventually sit on solid ground. Uh, leaving Long Ravine, you can see cutting through some more rock as we go east, reaching Colfax, uh, mile 55 in September of 1865. You can see, look at the amount of wagon traffic queuing up here with supplies to f go up the wagon road up into the Sierras. Now from uh, Colfax up to Gold Run, you can look at that yellow line now. Uh, they laid out a nice smooth 1.4% uh, grade there, but to do that, it's quite the route. And uh, Cape Horn being the most exciting, uh, one of the more exciting areas that you read about. So this is a picture of Cape Horn taken by Hart, uh, mile 58. And uh, this is about 1,200 feet above the American River. Uh, when I was doing my research, of course, you could see the photograph, the Hart photograph, but then you look at the illustrations from Flank Leslie's illustrated paper in Harper's Weekly. Uh, they both kind of... You know, I, the, the difference in angle there. So I think they took a little artistic license. So I was thinking, well, maybe even back then there was fake news. <laughs> so this is November. Um, they're really starting to build momentum now. Uh, Montague reported, quote, under, uh, the Chinese who under proper supervision soon became very skillful in the performance of their duties, even expert in drilling, blasting other departments of the rock work. He added, while at first there would have been some distrust to their capacity, this no longer existed. Uh, after four years, the Civil War ended June of 1865. In seeking uh, employment, many skilled railroad workers uh, found their way to Omaha to start working for the Union Pacific Railroad. Construction in the Union Pacific began in, in earnest July 10, 1865, with the laying of the first rail. Uh, just a few months removed from the end of the war, there was a lot of difficulty getting organized and getting financial backing, getting materials uh, rolling stock, all those things would be a challenge to, for the Union Pacific to get going. But there's a, quite a bit difference in initial challenge. The first 150 miles, if you compare the two, for the two railroads, all the way to Reno for the Central Pacific as compared to all the way to Grand Island. Uh, so they had that going for them. In March of 1864, Samuel Reed was hired to survey between Green River and Salt Lake. Uh, now in 1865, he was put in charge of all survey to the west of the Continental Divide, and there was still a lot of survey yet to be completed. This is, uh, after five and a half months, the uh, Union Pacific crews reached Fremont, a mile 47, December of 1865. Now, Durant's annual report from 1865 listed 425 miles of detailed survey and another 1,000 miles traveled with party. And then in 1865, uh, season comes to an end. The Central Pacific reached mile 55, and the Union Pacific was already at mile 47. Now, it took until April of 1866 for the Central Pacific to reach mile 59. Uh, you could see a sawmill that was established here. They would be cutting railroad ties, uh, also lumber to be used for fuel for the locomotives, and also lumber to be used for building snowsheds and other structures. Winter rains of 1866 were said to be very heavy. Uh, the wagon roads were impassable uh, that spring. At mile 62, we have 1,100-foot-long trestle at Secret Town. Again, very complex geometry there to build that bridge, overall length of 1,100 feet, so pretty legit structure. Finally reaching mile 64 at Gold Run. Uh, you can see uh, we're in the, now into the gold country here. And uh, in this photograph, you see the, the carts there. Uh, those were not for the delivery of refreshments. 
This would be for using the move to move spoils. So they move spoils in these one cubic yard dump carts. The trains would be rolling through while they finish up the cuts. Uh, now at Dutch Flat, in the background, you can actually see evidence of the sluice mining there. This is at Alta, mile 69. You can see a nice flat spot there where they set up a little depot with some uh, sightings. And then from Alta, um, this, again, you can see in this photograph, you can see the rail cars are actually loading up with, uh, with uh, soil that they, they would be using the dump uh, for making embankments. Working uh, east out of Alta, you can see this really interesting terracing going on to make the cut through there. This is at uh, Prospect Hill, uh, mile 76. Crews were probably here for over a year uh, to do that excavation through that cut. First tunnel was at mile 77, so about 500 feet in length through solid granite, uh, with a couple of seams of uh, soft stuff which they had to uh, board up. But typical uh, cross-section of a tunnel would be 16 feet wide at the base, 19 feet high overall height, required 10 cubic yards of excavation for every lineal foot. The, 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 the drill would be they would have an upper heading, a lower heading. Everything was hand-drilled, two and a half foot deep, two and a half inches diameter, and they would load that up typically with black powder, experimented with some nitroglycerin, but primarily black powder, light the fuse, and then run like hell. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So really, really laborious uh, indeed. Um, if the ground conditions and tunnels were soft, they'd have to line the tunnel with timber, uh, or masonry, or concrete. As you can see, this is up, um, you know, getting close to the summit, but you can see even in 1866, there was heavy traffic on the way to North Tahoe. <laughs> This is Al Gap Cut, uh, mile 80, near E-Gap or Immigrant Gap. Uh, you see how clean they kept the surface for the horses to pull the wagons. Uh, that was for the, the health of the horses. If they had rocky bottoms, uh, the horses would not uh, last very long. This is uh, the bank and cut at Sailor Spur at mile 80. Uh, really great picture. And you can get an idea here. Again, the one cubic yard dump cart. So what they're doing here, if you can imagine, these cuts are thousands of cubic yards. So they would have a series of benches. So they'd have the first bench, they would have a second bench, and the loaded carts, the horses would pull the loading carts down these ramps, and they would then dump those into the cut. So some of these pictures you can see evidence of maybe four uh, of these benches, but that's how they would do it, just one cubic yard at a time. The horses uh, would then pull the empty carts back up and then only to turn them around again with a full load. Throughout the summer of 1866, Crews worked uh, eastward. This is uh, mile 80. Uh, now we're right along Interstate 80 here. We're going from Immigrant all the way to uh, Cisco. So when you're driving through I-80, you're right there along where they were building the railroad back then. This is uh, East Ravine at mile 82. Again, a big, big fill right here. Finally getting up to Cisco. They reached there in November of 1866. Good place to spend the winter, I think. They're 6,000 feet above sea level. And we, we back then, there was talk of some of the blizzards would last two weeks at a time. 
This is snow sheds uh, being built. These were built under Samuel Brown's directions. I think at peak, there was 2,500 workers working on these snow sheds. 65 million board feet of lumber uh, were estimated to be used in the snow sheds. Very uh, enterprising and uh, ingenious mechanics would come up with these clever snow plows to be used. This would be uh, Upper Cisco. Again, look at the amount of wagon traffic there taking materials up the line. Now, from Cisco to the summit, only 11 miles to the, as the crow flies, but pretty steep grade now, up to 1.5% grade to get up there. Um, this is a unique, this is a how truss. It's called a timber arch reinforced how truss. These would be very challenging to build with that rugged terrain. But what they would first have to do, if you can imagine, they would build a trestle in that ravine. They would then use that trestle to build the how truss on top of that. And then uh, if the spring rains did not take out the trestle, they would take it out manually, uh, of course, allowing the trains to continue up the line. So really, really, really labor-intensive uh, as they got further into the, the Sierra Nevada range. Nothing really could prepare them as they, as they got further into the Sierras. More and more tunnels to construct. This is Tunnel 3, a mile 92. It's overall length of about 300 feet. Now reaching almost at the summit. We're just three miles from the summit now, a mile 102. Again, heavy two-way traffic on the wagon road. The, this is, a, in all total, Central Pacific was required to build 1.2 miles of tunnel, uh, spread over 15 tunnels, the longest being tunnel number six. And, of course, you know it's the longest, and it's also at the summit. It's got to be the most challenging. And it's all about 60,000 PSI granite up there. So it's really, really hard rock and at the toughest conditions. And I found a great report published in 1870 uh, in the Proceedings of American Society of Civil Engineers uh, written by John Gillis. And John talked quite a bit, wrote quite a bit about tunnel number six. Uh, tunnel six, and this is exaggerated vertical scale, but... What they had to do on the 1,600-foot-long tunnel was they started mining in with black, again, with black powder, uh, two headings on each end. It was going very slowly, so they put a vertical shaft in. They're working through the winter in snow tunnels, and they dropped this vertical shaft down through the middle. And the idea of that is that eventually to get four headings going to speed up the work. Remarkably, they kept very detailed cost records down to how many pounds of candles they used for lighting. And you can see the heading cost was $5,300 per month. So um, by the end of 65, Union Pacific had reached mile 47. Durant needed more experienced workers, so he hired Samuel Reed to be the superintendent of construction in 1866. Uh, Reed's quite an individual. Uh, he was uh, known to be a man of high integrity, an earnest church man. He'd worked on the Erie Canal already and the Rock Island uh, Ridge Crossing over the Mississippi River, so really quite a builder. This is uh, Durant also realized he needed more leadership and uh, management of his rail operations, so he hired the Casement brothers, 37-year-old General Cat, uh, Jack Casement, quite the character. He liked to dress, dress up uh, like uh, someone from, um, I think, the Siberia. They called him the Mad Cusack, but he was a real pusher, uh, quite an interesting guy. And Casement spent the winter in Omaha planning his uh, work train, set up with dormitories, uh, shops, armories, mess halls, everything he needed to be self-sufficient uh, out there in the middle of nowhere to build the railroad. The Casements were eager to get started, uh, yet the Missouri River was uh, frozen over uh, quite late in uh, spring of 66, so they weren't able to get their first materials until the end of April. 
And then Durant knew he needed a strong chief engineer. So after months of effort, he was able to lure uh, General uh, Granville Dodge from away from the Army uh, in May of 1866 to be the chief engineer. So with Dodge, the Casement Brothers, and other military veterans, uh, the Union Pacific is now being run with the precision and discipline of a military operation. Just like the Central Pacific, construction supply trains were critical to logistics. In this Russell photograph, we see one of the Union Pacific supply trains transferring material to the uh, wagons. This is a reenactment from Cecil B. DeMille's Union Pacific, a movie that came out, I think, in 1939. But I think it's a pretty good reenactment of what you would, you might see, what how that would work would be progressing. This is uh, while the Casement Brothers were managing the rail operations, Dodge was stayed pretty much focused on uh, looking after the bridge construction. The first big bridge they built was Loop Fork at mile 91. It's a multiple span Howe truss, overall length of 1,500 feet. Um, Columbus, Nebraska. Anybody from Columbus? Okay, now you know what Columbus looks like. It still looks like that today. <laughs> Quickly, uh, production would steadily increase, and crews uh, were now placing, um, they had placed over 50 miles, um, and they were up to uh, reach the 100-mile mark um, by June. So they're really gaining momentum under the casement's uh, leadership. Daily wages for uh, graders and teamsters were two fifty, spikers $3, ironmen $3.50 to $4 a day, and foremen $125 a month. And as they advanced, they would set up the depot towns and built the major uh, maintenance infrastructure like the roundhouses, the turntables. All those things had to be built as they uh, went uh, westward. October 6th, they reached the 100th meridian, 247 miles from Omaha. And then um, they're getting to the uh, out to the North Platte area, present-day North Platte. They had a major trestle there to build, 2,300 20, 20, feet in length, uh, Dodge felt the trestle would be there because the river was pretty placid um, year-round. Durant's annual report from 1866 listed 2,300 miles of survey, another 3,800 miles of reconnaissance survey. So the surveyors still very, very busy trying to find an efficient route. Now, as the surveyors are out there, they're generally the, out in the lead. And as they pushed westward, they encountered these very complex boundaries with the Native American tribes and then. And what you read about is really there's atrocities on both sides um, uh, with the uh, Native Americans. It would take a lot of food to feed that advancing army of rail workers, and they actually hired, uh, you know, riflemen or, or sharpshooters. Uh, the most famous you probably have heard of, uh, Wild Bill Cody, Buffalo Bill. He was said to have uh, harvested or killed 4,300 buffalo in 17 months. As in 1866, the work season came to an end. Central Pacific had reached mile 94, placing 39 for the year. Union Pacific placed 250 miles that year. Pacific Railroad Bill was further amended in 1866. What they did was remove the finish line. So they said, who can build the furthest, the fastest, will get the, the rewards. So this set up a race and a competition between the Central and Union Pacific. By January of 67, the Sierra Nevadas were in the grips of winter. Uh, again, Gillis talked about one blizzard lasting for almost two weeks, dumping over 10 feet of snow. So they're working up through, through, through snow tunnels to build tunnels numbers uh, 12 through 6, the longest again being tunnel number 6. So Louis Clement and his guys had a very tough challenge uh, that winter to build those tunnels. So what they did was they were able to, again, working through snow tunnels, they continued uh, excavating, but now with the vertical shaft in the middle, they have they opened up uh, four headings. 
so they can put four times the amount of workers to work, and they're working through uh, the spring of uh, 1867 into the fall. They hold through in August, and the first trains were able to roll through there in December of 1867. Uh, according to Engineer Gillis, with the exception of a few white foremen, uh, most of the work was done in the uh, tunnels by the Chinese Typical crews um, were 12 to eight, uh, 15 people per heading, and they worked three shifts of eight, eight hours each. Uh, this is uh, between Tunnel 7 and 8. There's a structure that's still there today called the China Wall, which is a very rugged masonry structure to uh, build the grade there for the road. Overall workforce was probably around 6,000 for the Central Pacific, um, and uh, probably nine-tenths of those were uh, Chinese workers. Gillis reported the Chinese to be a study, a hardworking set of men that could be found. They were paid $30 to $35 a month in gold. Throughout the winter of 67, uh, 66-67, there was as many as 2,000 Union Pacific workers uh, spending the winter in North Platte, and they were building the shops and other structures there throughout the winter. And with conditions improving in the spring, they were able to start setting their sights on going westwards towards Cheyenne, now some 225 miles to the west. And this is when you read about the uh, Union Pacific and the Hell on Wheels. This is kind of where that kind of starts up. The, the whiskey peddlers, the gambling tents, and so on, kind of following with their portable um, entertainment facilities. <laughs> February of 67 brought a week-long, week-long blizzard to Nebraska, stopping all traffic. Yet with the break in the winter, uh, Casement was able to start getting supplies uh, by April, and they're moving their army westward. It was an army indeed. There was about 1,000 men with the casements, 3,500 workers probably further up the line working on grading uh, up to 200 miles ahead, 450 trackmen, 350 working on uh, the trains, 100 surveyors, uh, thousands working on harvesting timbers and making ties, and, of course, the men working in the maintenance shop. So you could easily get up to around 10,000 workers for the Union Pacific alone. This is... uh, with the easy grades that they were, uh, they'd been working, as they, of course they go westward, they're going to get into more rugged terrain. They had built uh, 240 miles since the last winter, yet as they go past the west of Cheyenne, they're going to get into the highest areas of the whole railroad, 8,000 feet above sea level, uh, as they work through 1967, uh, up and they stop uh, in Cheyenne by uh, December that year. So by the end of 1867, Central Pacific's at now 105, uh, Union Pacific all the way up to 540. Now, from the summit down to Reno, it's pretty easy now. Only 32 miles, straight line shot. But look at that line to get through there. So if you've been up to Truckee, this is where they have to go. Now, Crocker, what he had done was he had moved materials over uh, the pass, uh, in advance of the summit through. So when they got to actually got to the other side of the summit, work is starting to progress very quickly coming down the Truckee River. A lot of these bridges uh, I'm showing you had already been constructed. Uh, the last tunnel they have to build, Tunnel 15, working their way down to Reno very quickly uh, as a comparison of uh, everything they did on the west side of the summit. Some side cuts here, but again, very rugged terrain. They finally reached uh, Reno, May 1st, 1868, 4,500 feet above sea level. Now, from Reno to Wells, which they called Humboldt Wells back then, that's 280 miles away, pretty rugged country, and you can see that route to get through there. They had to lay 360 miles of track to get over to Humboldt Wells. 
but this is kind of rel- relatively air- some areas of flat terrain. You can see a temporary bridge there. They're going to build a permanent bridge right there where that uh, boat is. This is um, at Camp 37, it's called. Uh, very no, no water here, so they'd have to move all the water on rail cars to support the work. Uh, this is Winnemucca, mile 334, Iron Point, 359. You could see the rail delivery cars there. They would take the rail uh, up up the line for placement on the ties. And finally reaching um, Elko, this is a December of 1868. Now, so if you look at the bottom there, two miles per month average in the first four years. Uh, after they got over the summit, now they've been doing 28 miles per month. So they really are picking them up momentum. Uh, and now in advance, we everything's coming together now, uh, going to come meet to, had they think, in, in Utah. So they surveyed, um, Surveyor Butler Ives surveyed a line through Salt Lake to the south, and he also surveyed another line that would go through Ogden, and they'd go north up through Promontory. And eventually they would select the, the Promontory route to the north. That same time, uh, rail lines were completed across Iowa, all the way to all you get all the way to the east coast now. So material logistics got quite a bit easier at this time for the Union Pacific. Yet there was still no bridge across the Missouri River. It's a good thing um, because as Dodge needed a lot of materials to build his road, he's got to go now from Cheyenne all the way to Green River, Wyoming. And this stretch here, it's pretty rugged terrain again, pretty high elevation. And also, uh, reading from the chief report, and driven the, I've driven through the area many times. I know it's a very rugged area. The geology is quite complex, and that's only going to make the work that much more complicated for the rail builders. This is uh, Hallsville, uh, mile 353, 8,200 feet above sea level. This is next to an area that's called Sherman's Pass. And this is a picture of Sherman's Pass, which uh, this part of the rail line has now been abandoned by the Union Pacific uh, for a more, a fi- little bit more efficient line. But this is a monument that's there at Sherman Pass, so it gave you an idea of the terrain they were building through. So just a little bit west of Sherman Pass, there's the Dell Creek Bridge. It's the, the uh, highest bridge on the whole railroad at uh, 70 or 8,000 feet above sea level. And uh, its overall length is 70 or 720 feet. Very, very high winds in this area. So if you can look closely in the photograph, you see the cables that's off the sides, that those are stabilizing cables to support and stabilize the structure in the wind. Uh, maximum speed on that bridge was set at four miles per hour. This is, uh, you know, some of the windmills that would be erected for pumping water. And uh, so even then, they were har- harvesting the wind quite a bit. This is in Laramie. And then the first tunnel they Union Pacific built was at St. Mary's Creek, about 680 miles out of Omaha. Again, complex geology as they work westward. This is a big rock cut at Bader Creek at mile 780, working towards Green River. They finally reached Green River in the fall of 1868. This was a a temporary bridge that they built there first on timber cribs with the simple timber pony trusses. Um, On the right-hand side, the gentleman standing in the tracks, that would be Samuel Reed on another temporary bridge, probably the second one they built. And the workers on the left-hand side are building the abutments uh, for the permanent bridge where they would put in a Howe truss. So that's Green River. Coming out of Green River, working a little bit to the west, you can see the side cuts and the rock there as they work westward. And then from Green, now from Green River to Promontory, uh, we have to go through the Wasatch Range. And if you've been in that part of the country, you know it to be very rugged. 
They still don't know where they're going to finish up, um, but they have to get through the Wasatch Range. One of the more challenging areas uh, on the whole line, really. Another tunnel to build there. But the end of 1868, you can see they're moving quite rapidly now. 330 miles for the Central Pacific, another 420 miles for the Union Pacific. And from Wells to Promontory now, only 130 miles as the crow flies, 172 miles a line to build there. They're moving quite rapidly now, but they're, at this time, they're actually building in early in the year on frozen ground, knowing that when the thaw came, they would have to go back and, and, and rebuild whole sections of line that uh, would thaw out. Because there was no agreed finish line, both Union Pacific and Central Pacific crews worked side by side, overlapped for some 200 miles. And there was apparently not very good blood between the Chinese and Irish workers um, as they worked side by side. Promontory Summit was finally agreed to as the final meeting point in April 9th, and uh, so that ended the race officially. This is uh, Salt Lake, mile 669 for the Central Pacific. Now, even though the race was over, uh, the Casement Brothers set a record of about eight and a half miles of track laid in one day. Crocker and Strobridge did not want to be outdone, and they actually placed 10 miles of track in one day. So many of you read, read accounts of that. In the time cards I found, I found that an Irish, all Irish gang played, uh, placed every stick of track that day. Um, the, it's a really remarkable achievement. This is the first, uh, the abutments of the first uh, bridge over the Weber River. You can see the Weber, Weber, if you've been, this is along Interstate 84 now, very rugged country going up the Weber Canyon, the wagon road built through there. And then this is a, uh, Survey notes from Samuel Reed. You can see the river in plan view in blue, and then you can see the the rugged terrain coming down through there. About the steepest terrain, 2.2% grade, which is the maximum allowed by law was 116 feet per mile, and somehow Sam Reed got it one foot under the max allowed. This is uh, the Union Pacific only had the four tunnels. Most of the challenging tunnels they built were right within Weber Canyon there. Um, You can see mile 994. 1,005, 1,006. So a lot of tunnels there. This is Tunnel 3 uh, with a Howe Trusk over the Weber River. Right by uh, this next uh, tunnel number 4, looking up the Weber. And this is one of my favorite bridges uh, that they built. This is at a place called Devil's Gate. It's, the interstate goes right next to this. You can actually uh, see this area very well. So when they first built a temporary trestle, like they would typically do, they built a Howe Trust within that. That because they knew the spring rains would wash out their trestle, so they had to put in the how truss, and which you can see there, and you can actually see the trestle being washed away by the Weber River. But then there was the third bridge that they built there was called a combination bridge, combination because it was a combination of timber and iron. And this is the load test. They loaded it up with locomotives to see if it would stand. Uh, working very promptly and quickly now towards Promontory. This is at Corinne, uh, mile 1060, up towards the summit now. Uh, getting close to Promontory, 1087. And uh, you can see now the railroads are coming quickly coming together there. So really a remarkable amount of work. Uh, 1,776 miles uh, that, uh, for the two roads. Uh, estimates range between the ten to fifteen thousand workers for the Central Pacific, another ten thousand for the Union Pacific, so, and we know the, the railroad was built with the blood, sweat, and tears of mostly an immigrant workforce. 
Some sources estimate around 1,200 fatalities um, for both of the railroads in building the railroad. At the completion of the Union Pacific, Dodge concluded his engineering crews performed 15,000 miles of instrument survey, another 25,000 miles of reconnaissance. Dodge wrote, quote, in making the surveys, numbers of our men, some of the most ablest and promising were killed, adding as one difficulty arose and was overcome in the engineering, running, and construction department, a new era in railroad building was inaugurated. The civil engineering crews that are men that built, uh, this is a picture of the Union Pacific engineering gang, uh, but through their perseverance and ingenuity, they not only paved the way for 19th century railroads, but indeed uh, all of 20th century civil engineering. After 1776 miles, six years duration, $125 million in cost, the last spikes were ready to be driven. And this is the iconic champagne photograph taken by Russell. The superintendents of construction were there, Strobridge and Reed. Uh, the gentleman shaking hands would be General Grenville Dodge and uh, Chief Engineer Samuel Montague. Theodore Judah had been dead for six years, but he was not forgotten. It's hard for me to imagine that the dreamer Theodore Judah could have dreamt how the Transcontinental Railroad transformed the United States. 33 states in 1860, 37 by the completion of the railroad, and, and 44 states by 1890. Long before the automobile and the interstate roads, railroads were the most transformative force in the world, providing cheaper goods, opportunity, growth, and freedom. In some small way, I hope this lecture has provided you a better understanding of the effort required to build the Transcontinental Railroad. And while there's no singular structure that defines the railroad, its 1,776 miles of collective effort represents a monumental chapter in the history of civil engineering and indeed the United States. Judah, Montague, Dodge, and their fellow engineers and builders overcame seemingly impossible obstacles and dangers and with it transformed an entire continent. Thank you. Sure, you might have missed any of those details, but we do have time for one or two questions. Anybody like to ask? Can you take an actual train ride over that route today? Yes, yes, you can actually. Still, I'm not sure what it's called. Probably someone here has probably done. Anybody here taking the train? The Zephyr. So, sounds like doesn't. It, they've abandoned the tunnels, but it, it goes around. Yeah. Well, they've 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 bypassed Promontory. Promontory's abandoned. They they have this thing called the Lysine Cutoff now, which so they don't go that way. But I presume the rails were bent on site. How was that accomplished? Brute force, <laughs> long long lever arms. But there's actually a, one of the photographs I showed. They actually called a, at Iron Point. They were bending the rail there. But it's a little dicey because these are cast iron rails. They don't they don't have they're they're extremely brittle. Uh, they don't. They have limited ductility, so they're not. You know, cast iron doesn't like to bend. It, it just likes to break. So, I'm not really sure how uh, those things perform when, especially when the weather got cold. Uh, is tunnel number six, which you identified as the longest tunnel, still there? Because presently there was a there's a tunnel under Donner Pass, which was constructed long after. Uh, is tunnel number six still there? It's it's still there, um, and I, I hear from time to time guys. Have, I've gone up there and explored some of the tunnels. I don't know to what extent they've got them blocked off, but it's still there. You can walk through it. You can you can walk through it. the The life expectancy of a timber trussel at most would be like twenty years. So, a lot of those areas, so those, some of those huge uh, trussels that you saw on the foothills, 
those were if you look at even ten years later they were they they were workers were filling those up with soil uh, to make embankment because they knew the timber would only last so long and then of course later where they needed bridges the wood would be replaced with iron and then later steel in your research were you ever f- able to find uh, train wrecks or evidence of the of the trestles failing uh, you know. There was there a few things that I read about where, you know, accidents with uh, trains catching on fire. Um, there's a lot of things you read about, you know, the Indians attacking and, uh, you know, the Plum Hill Massacre in Nebraska. You know, you read about things like that. There was, uh, I don't recall a lot of what you call like a, uh, say, catastrophic uh, trestle collapse. They they were really nervous about Dale Creek Bridge. That's it, the stabilizing cables and the four-mile-hour speed limit up there. Um, quickly, after, not too long after that, then they replaced that with an iron structure. But uh, it's really, really it's a testament to the skills of the engineers and the workers that they were able, you know, really to make these things with rudimentary tools, materials, and to hold up to the, those loads. I mean, 80,000-pound locomotives and, and all those things, so... When, when was the math and science done to figure out what was needed for, you know, the load, all that kind of stuff? I mean, it, they, they knew then. I mean, but all, this is this existed. is a really transformative time yeah. in, in civil engineering and in bridge building uh, because you have cast iron, which is just it's just ore, you know, melted down and poured into a mold. It's very brittle, limited ductility, uh, very low absorption, you know, ability to absorb shock. And then they made wrought iron. Wrought iron was an improvement. But again, limited ductility, doesn't like to absorb shock, doesn't perform very well in cold weather. And then the Bessemer process was developed in 1856, and later the Seaman open heart process in Germany. With that, you look at the amount of steel that's being made, and uh, with some of the bridge builders like James Eads with the Eads Bridge in St. Louis, they were taking uh, you know, steel making from its infancy into the modern era, getting high quality steel made so that there was this actually improve performance. Mm-hmm. And then with that, engineers transformed from thinking they would design with the factor of ignorance with four times or eight times factor of safety, and they would go now to where ne- with improved materials, we design structures now like a bridge we might design to a factor of safety 1.5 because we have such good reliance on the materials. Mm-hmm. But we still use the factor of safety because steel, even with its standards, is still not a perfect material. So you talked about a contest, and the contest, really, it wasn't, I, maybe I'm not smart, but I, I don't know really, I, I know who won, but was the contest in terms of miles, was it in terms of timing, and was it established as a contest from the very beginning, or did it become a contest? It, well, again, in 1866, when the Pacific Railroad Bill was amended, in 66, it removed the finish line for the Central Pacific. And with that, then both railroads were incentivized to build as fast as they could because they're getting not only the, the financial revenue, but they're also getting land holdings, not only the land, but the resources. So whether it be if they found lim- – if there was timber there, if there was gold, if there was oil, coal, I mean, this was the, – the, everything was about not only the money, but the land grants that would come with it. So they get alternating sections, you know, a section of land, one mile square – uh, alternate sections, 10 miles either side. So it would be a checkerboard pattern of land they would get both sides. So that was really the prize. 
Sorry, we, we've run out of time. But thank you very, very much. Uh, that was a really great look at how it was built. Um, and the cost of building must have gone up a lot now that we, we uh, house people uh, and don't kill them while we build the things and stuff. Well, t- today you wouldn't do it because of the environmental impact statement. So. Exactly. So thank you very much. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.